Good afternoon, ladies and gentlemen, and welcome to St Paul's Cathedral. My name is Rosemary, and I'm one of the team of clergy here at St Paul's, and it's my great pleasure to be chairing the forum today. Before we begin, I just have one health and safety notice, which is that in the event of a fire, which we haven't had for some number of years now, um, please do exit through the main door here and out through the crypt uh, past the cafe where we will assemble outside. Our event today, we welcome Dom Mark Barrett, who is a monk of the Benedictine community of Worth Abbey in Sussex. He is a well-known lecturer, a preacher and retreat giver. His previous book, Crossing, Reclaiming the Landscape of Our Lives, has been called a spiritual classic and an unusually fresh insight into the life of a contemporary monk. And after he wrote that book, The Monks of Worth Abbey became a surprise TV hit when three million viewers watched the television series The Monastery and Worth Abbey saw a sudden dramatic increase in people wanting to visit on retreat. Mark's latest book, The Wind, The Fountain and The Fire, looks at how the Book of Psalms puts into words the messy complexity of how we actually experience our relationship with God and one another. And today he will explore with us how the Psalms are a gateway to spiritual prayer and offer us a path through Lent. Mark will speak for up to 40 minutes or so and then we'll have some time for questions and answers. We'll finish promptly at two o'clock. At the end of this, a colleague from our shop will join us with some copies of Mark's book for sale at a generous discount. And Mark has very kindly said that he will also sign copies for people. So would you please welcome our speaker, Mark. Thank you for that very kind introduction and thank you all for being here today. It's a pleasure to be back at St. Paul's. Uh, I've forgotten how many years ago it was. A little while back I was here last, and I think it's so long ago that the room was facing the other way round when I was last here. <laughs> I thought I was dreaming when I came in, but I'm told I'm not. When I wrote a book called Crossing some years ago, I took the shape of the monastic day as my framework to enable me to reflect upon my experience of living the monastic life. In this book that I'm talking about today, The Wind, the Fountain and the Fire, I'm still exploring the shape of the monastic day, but I do it in a very different fashion. Not because the monastic day has changed, but because there are other themes that I wasn't able to address in that first book. The Wind, the Fountain and the Fire is a Lent book. It's written specifically for this present season, beginning uh, with Ash Wednesday and today the first Sunday of Lent. Its relationship to the previous book is that something I didn't look at in Crossing but which is a huge feature, a major feature of the monastic day, morning, noon, and night, is the monk's encounter with scripture, with the word of God. The monk's encounter with the prayer of scripture, the book of Psalms, and the psalm-like prayers which are scattered throughout the corpus of the scriptures, Old and New Testaments. So if Crossing explores the shape of the monastic office day, matins, lords, the midday prayer, evening prayer and vespers, 
Compline at Night. This new book explores, if you like, the content of that prayer, our encounter with the Word of God. And I hope that it's therefore something which every Christian will find of interest because every single one of us is called to encounter the Word of God. Every single one of us is nourished by that encounter with the Word of God. And every single one of us is challenged and finds it difficult to read the Word of God. The Bible is a book, I think, more often owned than read. And among Catholics, and I don't know how many in the room are Catholic today, but among Catholics, I think that's probably even more true than it may be among the churches of the Reformation, whose foundational charter, so to speak, was the re-encounter with the word. And I worry sometimes that that perspective led Catholics to think that must mean we're not supposed to encounter the word. We do something else. I'm not quite sure what. Um, but all Christians, Anglicans, Reformed, Roman Catholic, Orthodox, we're all children of that book because we are all dialogue partners of the living God who is speaking in that book. And so the little text that I have penned is an attempt to say something about my experience of encountering the Word of God in, oh gosh, what, 40-something years now of living as a monastic Catholic Christian. Monks and nuns probably spend more time with the Psalms and with big chunks of scripture, both in public worship and in private prayer and reflection than the average person, shall we say. We're supposed to be specialists of the word of God. I'm not sure how many of us ever really succeed in um, arriving at a place where we're entitled to claim that honor, but that's what we're called to be. We're called to be women and men who spend time among the words of God in order to meet the word of God, Christ himself. During the season of Lent, every Christian is challenged to re-encounter the realities of our faith and among those right at the heart of right at the center of that reality is our encounter with the living word of scripture but as I hinted a moment ago we all struggle I think to achieve that how many people deciding to read the Bible have picked up that hefty tome and started on page one with good intentions. And I think most people who approach the Bible in that fashion probably get lost somewhere in about Leviticus if they're doing well. 
Interestingly enough, of course, that's where the people of God of the Old Testament got lost as well, wasn't it? In the wandering in the desert. They took about 40 years to get out of that situation. And I fear that many of us may take about 40 years to get through some of those parts of the Old Testament. And there's the rub. The Bible is full of wonderful, wonderful things. I think it was George Bernard Shaw who said Wagner has some wonderful moments and some terrible half hours. Um, I don't actually agree with that view, by the way, but, but you could say that of scripture. There are some breathtakingly beautiful, inspiring and marvelous passages, but there are also some things that are quite frightening, some things that we don't understand when we read them, and some things, let's face it, that are just downright boring. And when you've got a collection of texts, poems, laws, stories, biographies, letters, pieces of history, chronicles of a kingdom, myths, family recollections, and they've all gone through a blender and ended up between the same set of covers, it's hardly surprising that we find it challenging and difficult to know just what is it that we're reading. And even why are we reading it? In The Wind, The Fountain and the Fire, I've tried to follow two key principles in suggesting how I've come to understand the process of encountering scripture and being encountered by the word of God in scripture. The first one, I think I can illustrate nicely by referring you to the story which I'm sure you're familiar with in the first book of Samuel of the call of the child Samuel to become a prophet. It's a well-known Old Testament story and it's used in a variety of church settings, uh, discernment, the vocation of the prophet, what it means to listen to the word of God, and so we've probably heard it many times. But have you noticed this about the call of Samuel? The story takes place at night, if you remember, and the child Samuel is ministering in the temple of God in ancient Israel, and his mentor, Eli, is an elderly gent who's fast asleep. And Samuel's woken from his own sleep, obviously not quite as deep as that of Eli, by a voice calling to him and just saying, Samuel, Samuel. And he assumes, not unreasonably, that it's Eli calling to him. You know, the, the old man needs some help in the night. So he gets up and goes to the old man and says, no, I'm not calling you, I'm not calling you, go back to bed. And this goes on for some time, until after Eli's been disturbed, I think it's about three times, he twigs what's going on, that this is God calling Samuel. And he tells Samuel what to do. If this voice comes again, he says, say, speak, Lord, your servant is listening which is what Samuel does on the fourth occasion. And that is the moment where he's called to become the figure that is familiar to us from the books of Samuel, the great prophet of Israel.
Now, what's significant about that for you and me? Well, it's this. Samuel hears God speaking to him. God speaking to him three times. And it doesn't occur to him that that's what's going on. Now, just put yourself into that situation. Why might one assume that God is not speaking to one? Well, I think that's kind of obvious, isn't it? Why, why would God be speaking to me? We none of us expect to be addressed by God. We none of us expect to hear God saying to us in our hearts, in the events of our lives, in our dreams, in our aspirations, in a neighbour who says something, in a person we come across who needs something. We none of us actually expect that to be God. What the Samuel story points us towards is the first principle that I've begun to realise we need to employ if we're to make sense of this great amalgam of stuff that is scripture. And that is, we've got to put ourselves into the story. We've got to allow ourselves to realize that the Bible is not about a lot of rather strange people in the Middle East a long time ago. It's not, as it were, Middle East Enders. <laughs> it's about me. It's about you. The Bible is about each of us. So if, like Samuel, we can approach the Word of God by saying and meaning, and meaning, speak, Lord, your servant is listening, if we can do that, then there is some possibility that we'll realize it's God speaking to us in his Word. We'll find ourselves in the story. So what I've tried to do in The Wind, the Fountain and the Fire is offer some ways to step into the story, some ways to do that. And as the five chapters of the book explore the themes of scripture that are placed in front of us on each of the Sundays of Lent, that's how I've structured the book, I've invited each of us to reflect on where can I find myself, something of me that is being addressed by this theme, by this idea, by this story in the scripture for today's Eucharist. So some of you have just come from today's Eucharist and unless it was a very unusual celebration, you'll have had passages read to you from the Old Testament. You'll have had a passage from the New Testament. There's probably been a psalm, maybe more than one psalm. And in the hymns that you sang and the anthems that were uh, chanted during the liturgy, other texts of scripture will have been set alongside them. And then there will have been the great proclamation of the gospel text for the day itself. And I think today's gospel will have been the narrative of Jesus in the wilderness, tempted by Satan. Now that way of placing texts alongside one another 
can be a bit disconcerting. What's that letter from St. Paul got to do with that story of someone in the wilderness, got to do with that prayer song from the temple in Jerusalem three, four, five thousand years ago? What's it got to do with those texts we sang on the way in? What's it got to do with the words of a Charles Wesley hymn and so on and so forth? But here is a second principle. Let's let our friends sit down. Welcome. Here's a second principle that can help us. If the first one is, how do I find myself in the narrative? The second is the answer to the question, how do I find a key to open up these stories and these letters and these different texts from so long ago? Back in the days of the very earliest Christians, a Bible teacher in Alexandria in Egypt, a man called Origen, had a beautiful idea to express how we find our way around the scriptures and also to express what's difficult about that. He was a scripture scholar. He kind of founded Christian scripture scholarship, you might say. And he was a Bible teacher. He was a preacher, a writer, uh, a great intellectual of the time. But he was also a man of great imagination. And he said, think of the Bible like this. Imagine, if you would, a very beautiful house which you've been invited inside. It's the most beautiful house you could imagine. And it's got numerous, numerous rooms. So many you, you probably could never even count them. But here's the thing. As you wander its hallways and corridors, thinking what a beautiful house and what fantastic views through all these windows, I'd really like to go inside the rooms, though, but you find that all the rooms are locked. Well, says Origen, that's what the Bible's like. It's a beautiful, palatial establishment, but it's very difficult sometimes to get out of the corridors and into the rooms. But here's how you do it, he said. Look carefully outside each room and you'll find a key. And of course you're going to try the key in the lock of the room, aren't you? But what you're going to find is that that key won't open that room because somebody has mixed them all up. All the keys are there and all the rooms are there but each key opens a different room. So you've got to find out which key is going to open which room. What Origen is pointing out is that the Bible will interpret itself for us. If we allow the Gospel of St. Luke to throw light upon a psalm text, if we allow the first chapter of Genesis to show us what's going on when the Israelites stray into the desert. If we allow the revelation of St. John at the very end of Scripture to throw light back upon the texts we were looking at and getting lost in uh, in the book of Leviticus, the key is there 
and we just have to put it into the right lock. So that's my second principle, drawn from the practice of Christians throughout the centuries and drawn from the shape of the monastic day. We read passages of scripture constantly and we then move to a different passage of scripture. So when we get lost in Leviticus, we go and read some of the New Testament. When we feel we want to pray in the words that God is giving us, we turn to the book of Psalms. And as we do that, not instantly, because hunting around Origen's house will take some time, as we do that, every so often we'll find, ah, this is the key for that door. That's going to open this particular room. And so in each of the chapters of the wind, the fountain, and the fire, I've taken a key image from the gospel of the day for each of the Sundays, the great Sundays of Lent. So today's image, drawn from the wilderness, is the dust, the very ground itself that makes up the wilderness that Jesus steps into to meet the tempter. And then what we do is we say, where else in scripture is that image deployed? And what's it used for? Let's see if that helps us. Let's see if there's the beginnings of the key there that will open some of the locked doors. It's been my experience that bringing texts together in that way does in fact throw light upon what's going on in any one of them. So let me explore with you that passage about dust or those passages about dust that I have found illuminating and which have helped me to begin to understand what happens when Jesus steps into the wilderness. I'd like to point you towards some psalm texts as we do this, and I'd start with Psalm 90, a prayer in which the psalmist cries out to God in the name of his whole people for help in time of difficulty. This psalm opens with a contrast between the mountainous reality and eternity of God, for whom a thousand years pass like a watch in the night, and the fleeting brevity of human existence, brief in the extreme. God is said to turn man back into dust and say, turn back, you mortals. Dust is used throughout scripture and especially throughout the Psalms as an image of how frail and evanescent, how passing human life is. Here today, gone tomorrow, the dust beneath our feet. But it's also used in scripture, and I think the, the first reading of today's Eucharist in Catholic churches, I don't know if it was the same here for you, comes from the book of Genesis and began with the creation of humanity from the dust of the earth. 
And scripture uses dust in those two different ways. As a symbol of how frail and passing our lives are, but also as a marvelous sign full of hope of how we are crafted by God from the base stuff of the earth he has made. In that book of Genesis reading that uh, you, you may have heard in your Eucharist this morning, God creates what the Hebrew text calls Adam, which really means humanity. It's not a personal name, although it's become one. Creates Adam from the Adama, the red dust of the Middle Eastern earth. And it's a lovely word play to establish that humanity is basically Adama, a mixture of water and dust. And in that story, we hear of God shaping the human, who at that point is neither male nor female, uh, shaping the human from the dust of the earth. There is a very beautiful um, image from the Cathedral of Chartres in France. I think it was carved in about the 13th century. It's in one of the porches of the cathedral. And in that image, the craftsman has shown us the Lord God seated and in the act of creation and lying in his lap, resting his head in the Lord God's lap, is the newly formed Adam, who has just been shaped from the Adama. The dust of the earth has been given human form and given life by God. It's that sense of how perfect and wonderful the human person is that scripture uses dust to speak about. So on the one hand, we hear of man and woman descending to the dust in the sense of falling away from life, entering the realm of death. But we also hear of the dust which the earth has given and which the Lord shapes into a living being. The Psalms speak frequently of how thoroughly the Lord God is acquainted with the reality of the human person. Acquainted not just as a, a distant deist watchmaker, but acquainted intimately with every blood vessel, every nerve, every sinew, every bone. And I'd like to turn to a psalm passage which I thought I had here in my notes and which is now trying to hide from me, um, which brings that out very beautifully. It's Psalm 139 in which the psalmist speaks of how the Lord knows 
every aspect of our being so that that image of dust of fragility and of um, frequent falling away from life becomes an image of hope and transformation because it speaks in Psalm 139 of how we can turn to the Lord who knows every aspect of our being. The second century theologian and bishop, Irenaeus of Lyon, understood the divine work of fashioning humanity in a manner that casts light on the Chartres sculpture that I mentioned, in which the Lord's hands work upon our being constantly forming us, and also the biblical story of the creation of humanity and the psalm in which we hear of how God knows us intimately. You, says Saint Irenaeus, you are God's workmanship and you should await the hand of your maker which creates everything in due time. You whose creation is being carried out. Irenaeus's wonderful use of the continuous present tense. Creation is not something that happened long, long, long ago, he says. It's what God is doing now. The sculpture in Chartres does not, for him, show an event in history at the beginning of the human race, it shows the here and now. That you and I are invited to understand ourselves as resting upon the lap of the Creator God, as held constantly by His hands, and constantly being shaped by that process. Our lives, for Saint Irenaeus, are a divine dialogue in which we make a move and the Creator responds. The Creator makes a move and we respond. We whose creation is being carried out. He goes on to say, that we should offer our hearts to him in what he calls a soft and tractable state and preserve the form in which the Creator has fashioned us by having moisture in ourselves. The point he's making, of course, is that if the potter is working on dry clay, it's just going to fracture and break. But if the clay, the dust with water in it, is moist, the potter, the creator, can continue to shape. For Saint Irenaeus, the Adam, the human person, formed from the Adama, remains crucially unfinished. 
the Lord God is holding the moist clay and continues to fashion his human children. For never at any time, writes Irenaeus, never at any time did Adam escape the hands of God. It's a wonderful image to carry with us into the wilderness which the first Sunday of Lent presents to us. Because the wilderness in Scripture is the place of the devil, it's the place of death. And that's not surprising because it's where there is no moisture, it's where there is no water. But if we enter that wilderness with Christ, which is what we're invited to do in the Gospel of the first Sunday of Lent, to step into the wilderness with Christ, we can begin to apply my first principle, what's this got to do with me? What am I talking about? I'm saying this. When we listen to the story of the temptations, it's tempting, if you'll forgive the pun, to regard it as a, a um, an admirable story about Jesus's wonderfulness. It's about Jesus, it's not about me. But let's go there with what we've learned from the imagery of dust in the Psalms and in the book of Genesis and in St. Irenaeus, and suddenly it is about me. Because the Lord God is working on the clay of my life constantly. And sometimes I will respond to his hands by trying to pull away. By being tempted. By stepping, trying to step away from those loving hands. And that's what all the temptations of Christ are about. They're about stepping away from the loving hands of God, of our Creator. And if I can stay with the story and understand that the Creator's hands at that point don't go, ugh, and reject my attempt to reject Him, but rather reach out even more broadly and continue to hold me, so that they can continue to work upon me. And then perhaps we start to understand the temptation story as about that dance that we've been carrying out with God throughout our lives, where I'm usually going backwards and God is usually coming forwards towards me. But God being God, of course, has reached out behind me already and is already holding me. And maybe that's part of why the dance between Jesus and Satan in the stories of the temptations seems to be a sort of duel using the word of God. I misunderstand the word and I step away from it. But God presents a new understanding of the word and welcomes me back into it. So throughout Scripture, throughout the Psalms, and especially throughout the Scriptures of Lent,
we're invited to understand that God continues to work upon us. So two principles. How do I find myself in this story? And secondly, where do I find the key that will unlock the chambers of scripture? Where do I find myself? I find myself usually at the center of the story that's being told, if I'm prepared to allow that. Sometimes I want to shy away. Sometimes, like Samuel the first few times, I want to assume that this is not God speaking to me, it's just an old man in the night who needs help. That's a good thing. Helping an old man who needs help is a good thing. Let's not get that wrong. But if we know how to listen aright, we'll discover that that wasn't Eli calling to us. That was God himself. And the keys are found by bringing passages of scripture together, by moving between the book of Psalms and the stories that we discover elsewhere in the scripture, and then moving back into the Psalms. And by doing that, we discover that images like the image of dust, unpromising as it is initially, can allow us to get right inside a story and discover how it can change our hearts. So not a quick fix, it's actually quite deliberately a slow fix, but nevertheless a way of exploring that mansion which Irenaeus, uh, sorry, which Origen first thought about and invited us to step inside, the mansion of scripture which is perhaps part of what Jesus is talking about in St. John's Gospel when he speaks of my father's house having many mansions. We step inside and we allow the scriptures to interpret themselves for us. In the book I'm talking about, The Wind, the Fountain and the Fire, I've tried to use five images for the five weeks of Lent. And in the case of each of those weeks, an image guides us as we read through the different chapters to understand how those different passages of scripture can be set alongside one another and can interpret one another in such a way that we find ourselves there and we can begin to enjoy what God is promising us, the life of his son. So I think I've done my 40 minutes and at this point I'm going to hand over to your good selves and there may be things you'd like to ask about, there may be things you'd like me to think further about uh, and there may be comments you'd like to offer which I can learn from. So thank you for listening attentively and uh, I look forward to hearing what you would like to say or what you would like to ask. <laughs>